This morning, I invite you to open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you brought a Bible, love it if you would turn there with us. Otherwise, we do have some paperback Bible and a number of the chairs that are near you. Love it if you would grab that Luke chapter 24. We've said a number of times during the course of our gathering already, he is risen. He is risen indeed, and he is risen truly. It is sure, and we are sure of this, because this is the matter at hand. This is the reality of our celebration, and it is the hope of our salvation. And so we invite you to follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 24. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12, where we hear that reality recorded for us in the scriptures. Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that we would begin to marvel, that we would be amazed, that we would walk with these women in this telling of the story of your resurrection and that we would see and we would confess our being perplexed, that we would be in wonder and in need of your word and that we would remember, we're remembering your scriptures, we would come to understand the truth of your resurrection. I pray that that would impact every one of our hearts for our salvation, our hope in you, as well as for our worship that we would give glory to your great name. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in in your name, in the name of Jesus, the resurrected one, we pray. Amen. This morning, our focus on Easter morning is appropriately the historical reality of the resurrection. We will walk very simply through the events that are recorded for us here in this passage by primarily paying attention to the experience of these women. These women who were the first to witness the reality that Jesus had risen from the dead. Imagine being the ones who were there. Being the ones to be the first to realize and to remember that the scriptures were true. The hope is real. There is a resurrected Messiah. As we recount that, the first thing that we see in the passage, if you're still following along with me, was the fact that they went to the tomb. 
Now, these women that went to the tomb at the beginning of chapter 24 are the same women who went uh, in chapter 23, the women who came down from Galilee with Jesus. They were among the very few who appeared to be faithful and constant in the midst of all the turmoil of the arrest and the crucifixion. And at the end of our passage, we see that some of their names, their names are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and others. These women who had accompanied the other disciples of Jesus at at many times, they had provided for the daily needs of Jesus and the 12. They were a diverse group of women. Some had come from a particularly sinful past, and they saw in Jesus the grace and of forgiveness. Others like Joanna, the wife of King Herod's household manager, had used their privileged position and possessions in society to provide for Jesus out of their personal means. Diverse group of women who found themselves united in one Messiah, one Savior, who get to bear witness to the reality of his resurrection on this day. The passage tells us really three little details at the beginning of chapter 24. They went to the tomb with spices. Why did they do that? Because they went there expecting to find a dead body. That that is an important detail for us. They found when they came there expecting to find a dead body to to freshen up the smell and the tomb, they found the stone in front of the tomb already rolled away. They had been worried about how exactly they would get into the tomb, if the soldiers would give them access or not, but they found the tomb rolled away. And thirdly, they went into the tomb, and when they got there, they they found the body of the Lord Jesus was gone. These are three simple and clear statements And these three simple statements, coupled with the details at the end of chapter 23, situate the resurrection as a historical reality. The facts are clear. They can be boiled down to these two simple realities. On Friday, Jesus' body was in the tomb. On Sunday morning, following the Sabbath, his body was gone. Those are the historical eyewitness account details of the reality surrounding the resurrection. The passage in verse 4 tells us, and we should not be surprised, that they they were perplexed. Their perplexity shouldn't be surprising to us. We'll quickly discover the crucial reality that they had forgotten that would later reveal the mystery of the resurrection. But right now they were not remembering, and so they were perplexed as to what in the world was going on when you show up at a tomb that had a dead body in it on a Friday. You expect to come back to that tomb and find that same dead body in there again on a Sunday morning. And we see that they are dealing with something that really probably all of us are familiar with. They were dealing with the reality of of doubt. They were of two minds concerning what was taking place on this Sunday morning. Throughout this morning, as we consider the resurrection, we would do well to remember just how remarkable 
It is. We say it so easily, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. I mean, of course he is, right? It's remarkable. This isn't just a natural phenomenon that we have gathered this morning to remember and to celebrate. The facts of the resurrection are simple and clear. But the reality of the resurrection is no less perplexing to the mind and the heart. We often find ourselves perplexed when we remember and are confronted with the reality of the resurrection's claims. I remember as a child just growing up and celebrating the resurrection, and I wanted to celebrate, and I did celebrate, and I sang the songs, and I, and I repeated after the leaders, he has risen indeed, and yet the whole time I'm thinking, that's crazy. That's remarkable. I, it's true, but really? Right? Jesus was arrested. He was publicly beaten and hung on a cross. He suffocated there and everyone saw it. He was placed in a tomb because that's where dead bodies go. And he was secured behind a large stone. And now the claim is that this tortured, murdered man is alive. It's most natural, as Tim Keller argues, that it's helpful to our faith that we would be perplexed, that we may even be inclined to doubt such a remarkable claim. Here's what Tim Keller says regarding doubt. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. Do you hear the call to be willing to listen to the question, even the question of your own mind and heart, to be perplexed? You see, it's as our doubts are confronted by serious thought and reflection that they are transferred from the realm of pestering perplexities to confident convictions. They are hard-won battle with the soul to remember well. The question for the women, perhaps the question for us this morning is, where had the body gone? Perhaps the religious authorities had, had sought to murder Jesus. Perhaps they had come in and they'd taken the body, one last bit of violence. But surely then, when the claims began to rise up that the resurrection had taken place, they would have then produced the body and put the whole of the church to shame, right? No, that's not what we see them do. We, instead, we see them debating at the end of the Gospels and in the beginning of Acts. We see them just as perplexed at the claims of the resurrection as were the women and the disciples. Perhaps the disciples stole the body. But we see in the response of the disciples that they are even more perplexed than the women 
Besides the fact that Roman soldiers who sealed the tomb never would have given access to these men that were so closely associated with this recently condemned and crucified man. Even the women were concerned about how in the world they were going to get access, let alone those, these co-conspirators with Jesus. Perhaps people have tried throughout history to discredit the resurrection account, but every attempt seems more fanciful than the last failed attempt to discredit the resurrection account. Every time our doubt rises, our faith will be served if we meet it head on and search for the answers that our faith longs for, and we will find them. Confidence will increase, and our faith will become conviction. We see that these women were complexed. Most importantly, in verse 6, we see that they failed to remember. In verse 4, we see that two men appeared. They appear in dazzling apparel. The women were frightened. They bowed down, their faces to the ground. We shouldn't be surprised at that either. They've already had the mystery of an empty tomb on that morning, and now they're presented with the mystery of two men appearing in dazzling apparel, and that tells us who they are. They are the angels, the messengers of God, and they're sent to remind the women of what they have forgotten. But the women are still in the state of being perplexed. But it's what they'll remember, what the angels will remind them of, that will unlock the mystery of the empty tomb for them. Look at verse 5, the second half of that verse. The men say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. I was reading a commentary this week by Kent Hughes, and he was reflecting upon that phrase, why do you seek the living among the dead? He says this, all resurrection-denying churches, sadly, those exist. All resurrection-denying churches look for Jesus among the dead. They love the example of the dead Jesus. They preach his courage, his conviction, even his faith. Sentimentality fills their sermons with language about recurrent spring, making hope eternal, and a butterfly discarding its chrysalis. But the R word is never used except metaphorically. I remember as I was watching the coverage of the the burning of Notre Dame, many times as the commentators were struggling with how to impress upon the listeners just exactly the meaning of what was taking place, They would often say, now I am not personally a person of faith, they would say, but surely on Passion Week we should remember how beauty rises from the ashes. I heard that I don't know how many times during the course of the coverage. Friends, that is a sentimental metaphor of a dead faith. It's little more than encouraging thoughts about a dead Jesus. We aren't that church. When we speak of the resurrection, we mean a dead man, yes, who came to life, who is actually alive. And if that perplexes you, you're not the first. 
But the historical reality of the resurrection, his many appearances and proofs begin to eat away at our skepticism. And the prophecies of the scriptures about the resurrection, they give us a context within which to understand the resurrection. And the proclamation of the gospel, the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life rings like truth to our lost and wandering souls. The resurrection is not a better way to live until we die. The resurrection is about the promise that though we will die, yet we will live. Friends, the resurrection is a lot more than good advice. It's life forevermore. The angels tell the women, remember, remember how he told you. And we can go back right into the same gospel, back to Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 22. And I would encourage you, write that verse down in the margin of your Bibles. Luke 9, 22, where Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus spoke many things in parables and metaphors during the course of his ministry, but the disciples missed just how clear and plain his statement was to them. In fact, in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, it says that Jesus said these things plainly. These words of Jesus regarding his betrayal, death, and resurrection were made plain to them. He included details about who exactly would be complicit in his death. And he included details about the timing of his rising. The angels reminded the women of those words. And the passage says, the women remembered It's key for us. It's key for us to realize that we cannot truly understand the resurrection. Now, I hope that somebody here is here this morning and you want to hear the rest of that sentence. Because you're here because you want to understand more about this Easter celebration. You want to understand more about this resurrection. Friends, It's key that we we cannot uh, truly understand the resurrection, the mystery that often perplexes our faith without the words of Jesus and the explanation of the Scriptures. It's remarkable nonsense apart from the according to the Scriptures statement of utmost importance. Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection so that we might understand what it is that he had done. The scriptures speak of his resurrection so that we might understand what it means. The passage tells us that they they remembered. They began to recall the scriptures that the resurrection was in accordance with. They began to recall the words of Jesus that explained exactly what would happen and what it would mean. And when the 
Truth began to dawn upon them as the words of Jesus began to unlock the truth of the resurrection for them. Verse 9 tells us that they returned and told others. This account is one of the most convincing proofs of the resurrection recorded in the scriptures. What follows after verse 9, it brings conviction to my own soul. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It tells us who it is that told them, and it tells us what the response of the apostles was. The disciples do not begin in a place of confidence and hope. What we find is not a group of faith-filled men disposed to every whim and fanciful tale. Neither is this a group of prideful storytellers drawing a crowd, attempting to create a new myth, a new religion. What we see is we see a people who are little more than a fearful band of disbelieving and downcast. Former believers and followers of Jesus Christ. It's only after many proofs and appearances given by the angels and the appearance of Jesus himself that move these incredulous disciples from idle unbelief to passionate proclamation. Just as with the women, so also the rest of the disciples. They became convinced by the many evidences and proofs that are accessible to us. J.C. Ryle writes, the first preachers were men who were convinced in spite of themselves and in spite of a determined, obstinate unwillingness to believe, they believed. You remember the quote from Tim Keller about doubt earlier? That was the experience of the disciples. Their doubts were confronted by an eyewitness Testimony and their doubts lingered. Then they were confronted with the words of Jesus and the scriptures. Then they were confronted with the appearing of Jesus himself to many witnesses. And their doubts were confronted and they were converted into confident faith. This is how we handle our doubt. This is how we handle our unbelief by searching the scriptures for the evidence of the Christ. Now, there's one who acts just a little bit differently at the end of the passage. In verse 12, we're told, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in, and look, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. As Peter's doubts are being challenged by the testimony of the women, as he begins to remember the words of Jesus about his death and resurrection, Peter doubt, Peter's doubts begin to give way to hope, and he runs to the tomb. What does he find? Linen in an empty tomb. The body was not stolen. If you steal a body, you don't Strip that body naked before you walk out of its tomb. Now, this body isn't stolen. This body is resurrected. And Jesus has no need for burial clothes anymore because he's alive. And he's clothed, not in the linens of death, but in the righteous robes of resurrection. The very robes that await all who believe in him, in which we too will be clothed. 
Peter returns to the others and he's marveling at what he had seen. What he had seen. You see, he had had not seen yet the appearing of Jesus. Jesus was about to appear to the disciples, to Peter first, it says, and then to the others. But what had Jesus seen? Or what had Peter seen? Peter had seen with the eyes of faith, through the remembering of the scriptures. What do we have access to? We have access to that same Jesus, who with the eyes of faith we can see in accordance with the scriptures. What specifically had they seen? Well, there's this extra word that's in verse 3. We skipped over it. We read it quickly. You go back there with me. It says, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Not just a man Jesus. Not just a teacher Jesus. Not just an example or symbol of hope Jesus. They found the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Prior to this in all of the gospel accounts, he is simply Jesus, perhaps the Son of God, perhaps the Son of Man. But here in this account of the victory and vindication of the resurrection, it is for the first time ascribed to him that he is the Lord Jesus, without a doubt, the risen one. The God of the scriptures has dwelt among us. He has died for us and he has risen in triumphant victory and he is the Lord Jesus. That is who our eyes see that we behold with the eyes of faith in accordance with the scriptures. And so let us remember the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus who is himself God, took on flesh. This is his story. He was born as a child, just as we celebrate at Christmas, where all other men, women, and children, including ourselves, have lived lives filled with sin and rebellion against our God. Jesus lived the only perfect life. Perfect humility, Righteous obedience before the Father. This is the story of the Lord Jesus. Just as he had spoken about himself, he was betrayed. It took place just as he had spoken in Galilee. Just as he had spoken of Judas in the upper room. He was beaten. and He was crucified. And he died. Not because of his own sin, though, but because as a righteous sacrifice, he died in the place of sinners. All sinners are due the justice of God. All sinners are due a death that is the just punishment of rebellion against the king of all of creation, the Lord God. But because of the sacrificial death of Jesus, he's taken that just punishment for sin in the place of all who would believe. Now, how do we know that the sacrifice worked? How do we know that he really did die in our place and that it was received as sufficient before the Father? Because he rose from the dead. This is the sign of the victory, the vindication of the justice of the cross. And he rose with the promise of salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life for all who would believe. This is the gospel that the Lord Jesus has before performed, that he is declared, and he is borne witness to through his apostles in his holy scriptures. 
That is the call upon all of us who hear today. If you are perplexed, I call you to do business with your doubts. Do the work. Read the word. Spend time in reflection. Give them the time that they are due. Allow the word of God and the reality of the resurrection to confront your own unbelief. And as you come to see the miraculous and redeeming reality of the resurrection, I would call you to repent of your sin and unbelief. I call you to believe that because Jesus has died in your place, your sins are actually forgiven. They have been died for. So there is no death of judgment waiting for any who believe. But because he rose from the dead, he has secured eternal life for his redeemed. There's a pattern of faith that's played out in that gospel. And it's a pattern of faith that we see repeated for us three different times at the end of Luke. Three different places we're confronted with the reality of the resurrection. In the empty tomb account here in chapter 24, in the road to Emmaus that immediately follows, and in the disciples in Jerusalem. Kent Hughes helpfully points out that each time the pattern is the same. There are four phases that each of these people who are receiving the witness about the resurrection go through. The first is bewilderment. They are perplexed. Then they are rebuked. Then they are instructed. And then they become witnesses. What brings about this movement from bewilderment to belief? It's that they're confronted and instructed with the word of God. Do you hear that? What moves us from bewilderment to belief? We would be instructed by the word. Just as we discovered in our passage today, these women were perplexed until they remembered the words of Jesus. This is what we are all about at Cross Point Coast. We're constantly battling our unbelief by paying attention to the word of God. We want the Bible to confront us, to rebuke us, to instruct us, and lead us on to belief that we would be his witnesses. So specifically, I would invite you, church, every one of us here, to join us and to join with the churches that are scattered around this nation, that we would join together to do battle against unbelief by being continually confronted by the word of God. And as our fears become faith, a prayer for us is this, that bewilderment would turn to worship. Our confusion is no longer about the reality of the resurrection. Our amazement is that the God of creation has truly come to rescue rebels. That's what leaves us perplexed and bewildered and saying, this isn't just grace, this is amazing grace. Our hope and joy is that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have done battle with our unbelief while we were yet sinners. That you have worked in our place to rescue us from our rebellious waywardness and our proneness to wander. 
Lord, that you walked in perfect obedience where the best of us were still rebels. Lord, that you have died for us, a death that were we to die, we would deserve and stay dead. But because you were the righteous one and you died in our place, we are not only forgiven, but granted eternal life. Lord, I thank you for that word and its work in our midst and the way that it doesn't just provide for us eternal life. It doesn't just provide for us the hope of heaven. It provides for us the very real presence of your grace, a reconciliation with our God now, and that you have given us all the blessings of salvation, that we have a church, that we have a people that we belong to because of your grace, that we have a way in which we have been rescued to live, a way of faith-filled obedience. You have rescued us from our doubts and our perplexities and our unbelief. And you have given us a word by which we can do that battle daily. Thank you, Lord. We trust you this morning. Again, we remember. We remember the instruction of the angels. We remember what you have said and what you have done. Cause us to remember all the more and worship you as a consequence. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus our risen King and Redeemer. We pray this in His name. Amen.